0: You are listening to the Philosophy Podcast presented by LearnOutloud.com. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, Nietzsche, and beyond. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. The Symposium by Plato written in approximately 385 B.C., translated by Benjamin Jowett. The Symposium is a philosophical dialogue written by Plato on the nature of love, taking the form of a series of speeches given by a group of men at a symposium or drinking party at the house of the tragedian Agathon at Athens. The following excerpt is Socrates' speech on love, which he delivered at the Symposium. "'And now,' said Socrates,' I will ask about love. Is love of something or of nothing? Of something, surely, Agathon replied. Keep in mind what this is, and tell me what I want to know. Whether love desires that of which love is? Yes, surely. And does he possess, or does he not possess, that which he loves and desires? Probably not, I should say. Nay, replied Socrates. I would have you consider whether necessarily is not rather the word. The inference that he who desires something is in want of something, and that he who desires nothing is in want of nothing, is in my judgment, Agathon, absolutely and necessarily true. What do you think? I agree with you, said Agathon. Very good. Would he who is great desire to be great, or he who is strong desire to be strong? That would be inconsistent with our previous admissions. True, for he who is anything cannot want to be that which he is. Very true. And yet, added Socrates, if a man being strong desired to be strong, or being swift desired to be swift, or being healthy desired to be healthy, in that case he might be thought to desire something which he already has or is. I give the example in order that we may avoid misconception. For the possessors of these qualities, Agathon, must be supposed to have their respective advantages at the time, whether they choose or not. And who can desire that which he has? Therefore, when a person says, I am well and wish to be well, or I am rich and wish to be rich, and I desire simply to have what I have, to him we shall reply, You, my friend, having wealth and health and strength, want to have the continuance of them, for at this moment, whether you choose or no, you have them. And when you say, I desire that which I have and nothing else, is not your meaning that you want to have what you now have in the future? He must agree with us, must he not? He must, replied Agathon. Then, said Socrates, he desires that what he has at present may be preserved to him in the future which is equivalent to saying that he desires something which is non-existent to him, and which as yet he has not got. Very true, he said. Then he and one who desires, desires that which he has not already, and which is future and not present, and which he has not and is not, and of which he is in want. These are the sort of things which love and desire seek. Very true, he said. Then now, said Socrates, Let us recapitulate the argument. First, is not love of something, and of something too which is wanting to a man? Yes, he replied. Remember further what you said in your speech, or if you do not remember, I will remind you. You said that the love of the beautiful set in order the empire of the gods. For that of deformed things there is no love. Did you not say something of that kind? Yes, said Agathon. Yes, my friend, and the remark was a just one. And if this is true, love is the love of beauty and not of deformity. He assented, and the admission has already been made that love is of something which a man wants and has not. True, he said. Then love wants and has not beauty. Certainly, Agathon replied. And could you call that beautiful which wants and does not possess beauty... "'Certainly not. "'Then would you still say that love is beautiful?' "'Agathon replied, "'I fear that I do not understand what I was saying.' "'You made a good speech, Agathon,' replied Socrates. "'But there is yet one small question which I would fain ask. "'Is not the good also the beautiful?' "'Yes. "'Then in wanting the beautiful, love wants also the good.' I cannot refute you, Socrates, said Agathon. Let us assume that what you say is true. Say rather, beloved Agathon, that you cannot refute the truth. For Socrates is easily refuted. And now, taking my leave of you, I would rehearse a tale of love which I heard from Diotima, of Mantinea, a woman wise in this and in many other kinds of knowledge, who in the days of old, when the Athenians offered sacrifice, before the coming of the plague, delayed the disease ten years. She was my instructress in the art of love, and I shall repeat to you what she said to me, beginning with the admissions made by Agathon, which are nearly, if not quite the same, which I made to the wise woman when she questioned me. I think that this will be the easiest way, and I shall take both parts myself as well I can. As you, Agathon suggested, I must speak first of the being and nature of love, and then of his works. First I said to her in nearly the same words which he used to me, "'that love was a mighty God, and likewise fair. "'And she proved to me as I proved to him "'that by my own showing, love was neither fair nor good. "'What do you mean, Diotima?' I said. "'Is love then evil and foul?' "'Hush!' she cried. "'Must that be foul which is not fair?' "'Certainly,' I said. "'And is that which is not wise ignorant?' Do you not see that there is a mean between wisdom and ignorance? And what might that be, I said? Right opinion, she replied, which, as you know, being incapable of giving a reason is not knowledge, for how can knowledge be devoid of reason? Nor again ignorance, for neither can ignorance attain the truth, but is clearly something which is a mean between ignorance and wisdom. Quite true, I replied. Do not insist, she said. That what is not fair is of necessity foul, or what is not good evil, or infer that because love is not fair and good, he is therefore foul and evil, for he is in a mean between them. Well, I said, love is surely admitted by all to be a great God. By those who know, or by those who do not know? By all. "'And how, Socrates,' she said with a smile, "'can love be acknowledged to be a great god by those who say that he is not a god at all?' "'And who are they?' I said. "'You and I are two of them,' she replied. "'How can that be?' I said. "'It is quite intelligible,' she replied, "'for you yourself would acknowledge that the gods are happy and fair.' "'Of course you would. "'Would you dare to say that any god was not?' "'Certainly not,' I replied.' And you mean by the happy, those who are the possessors of things good or fair? Yes. And you admitted that love, because he was in want, desires those good and fair things of which he is in want? Yes, I did. But how can he be a God who has no portion in what is either good or fair? Impossible. Then you see that you also deny the divinity of love. What then is love, I asked? Is he mortal? No. What then? As in the former instance, he is neither mortal nor immortal, but in a mean between the two. What is he, Diotima? He is a great spirit, and like all spirits, he is intermediate between the divine and the mortal. And what, I said, is his power? He interprets, she replied, between gods and men. Conveying and taking across to the gods the prayers and sacrifices of men, and to men the commands and replies of the gods. He is the mediator who spans the chasm which divides them, and therefore in him all is bound together, and through him the arts of the prophet and the priest, their sacrifices and mysteries and charms, and all prophecy and incantation find their way. For God mingles not with man, but through love, All the intercourse and converse of God with man, whether awake or asleep, is carried on. The wisdom which understands this is spiritual. All other wisdom, such as that of arts and handicrafts, is mean and vulgar. Now these spirits or intermediate powers are many and diverse, and one of them is love. And who, I said, was his father and who his mother? The tale, she said, will take time. Nevertheless, I will tell you, on the birthday of Aphrodite, there was a feast of the gods, at which the god Porus, or Plenty, who is the son of Metis, or Discretion, was one of the guests. When the feast was over, Penia, or Poverty, as the manner is on such occasions, came about the doors to beg. Now Plenty, who was the worse for nectar, there was no wine in those days, went into the garden of Zeus, and fell into a heavy sleep and poverty, considering her own straitened circumstances, plotted to have a child by him. And accordingly she lay down at his side and conceived love, who partly because he is naturally a lover of the beautiful, and because Aphrodite is herself beautiful, and also because he was born on her birthday, is her follower and attendant. And as his parentage is, so also are his fortunes. In the first place he is always poor, and anything but tender and fair as the many imagine him. And he is rough and squalid, and has no shoes, nor a house to dwell in. On the bare earth exposed he lies under the open heaven. In the streets or at the doors of houses, taking his rest, and like his mother he is always in distress. Like his father, too, whom he also partly resembles, he is always plotting against the fair and good. He is bold, enterprising, strong, a mighty hunter always weaving some intrigue or other, keen in the pursuit of wisdom, fertile in resources, a philosopher at all times, terrible as an enchanter, sorcerer, sophist. He is by nature neither mortal nor immortal, but alive and flourishing at one moment when he is in plenty, and dead at another moment, and again alive by reason of his father's nature. But that which is always flowing in is always flowing out, and so he is never in want and never in wealth." and further, he is in a mean between ignorance and knowledge. The truth of the matter is this. No god is a philosopher or seeker after wisdom, for he is wise already. Nor does any man who is wise seek after wisdom. Neither do the ignorant seek after wisdom, for herein is the evil of ignorance, that he who is neither good nor wise is nevertheless satisfied with himself. He has no desire for that of which he feels no want, But who then, Diotima, I said, are the lovers of wisdom, if they are neither the wise nor the foolish? (laughs) A child may answer that question, she replied. They are those who are in a mean between the two. Love is one of them. For wisdom is a most beautiful thing, and love is of the beautiful. And therefore, love is also a philosopher or lover of wisdom. And being a lover of wisdom is in a mean between the wise and the ignorant. And of this, too, his birth is the cause. For his father is wealthy and wise, and his mother poor and foolish. Such, my dear Socrates, is the nature of the spirit love. The error in your conception of him was very natural. And as I imagine from what you say, has arisen out of a confusion of love and the beloved, which made you think that love was all beautiful FOR THE BELOVED IS THE TRULY BEAUTIFUL, AND DELICATE, AND PERFECT, AND BLESSED. BUT THE PRINCIPLE OF LOVE IS OF ANOTHER NATURE, AND IS SUCH AS I HAVE DESCRIBED. I SAID, O, oh, THOU STRANGER WOMAN, THOU SAYEST WELL, BUT ASSUMING LOVE TO BE SUCH AS YOU SAY, WHAT IS THE USE OF HIM TO MEN? THAT, SOCRATES, SHE REPLIED, I WILL ATTEMPT TO UNFOLD. OF HIS NATURE AND BIRTH I HAVE ALREADY SPOKEN and you acknowledge that love is of the beautiful. But someone will say, Of the beautiful in what, Socrates and Diotima? Or rather, let me put the question more clearly and ask, When a man loves the beautiful, what does he desire? I answered her, That the beautiful may be his. Still, she said, The answer suggests a further question. What is given by the possession of beauty? To what you have asked, I replied. I have no answer ready. Then, she said, let me put the word good in the place of the beautiful and repeat the question once more. If he who loves, loves the good, what is it then that he loves? The possession of the good, I said. And what does he gain who possesses the good? Happiness, I replied. There is less difficulty in answering that question. Yes, she said, the happy are made happy by the acquisition of good things. Nor is there any need to ask why a man desires happiness. The answer is already final. You are right, I said. And is this wish and this desire common to all? And do all men always desire their own good, or only some men? What say you? You are right, I said. And is this wish and this desire common to all? AND DO ALL MEN ALWAYS DESIRE THEIR OWN GOOD, OR ONLY SOME MEN? WHAT SAY YOU? ALL MEN, I REPLIED. THE DESIRE IS COMMON TO ALL. WHY, THEN, SHE REJOINED, ARE NOT ALL MEN, SOCRATES, SAID TO LOVE, BUT ONLY SOME OF THEM, WHEREAS YOU SAY THAT ALL MEN ARE ALWAYS LOVING THE SAME THINGS? I MYSELF WONDER, I SAID, WHY THIS IS. THERE'S NOTHING TO WONDER AT, SHE REPLIED. The reason is that one part of love is separated off and receives the name of the whole, but the other parts have other names. Give an illustration, I said. She answered me as follows. There is poetry, which, as you know, is complex and manifold. All creation or passage of non-being into being is poetry or making, and the processes of all art are creative. AND THE master OF ARTS ARE ALL POETS OR MAKERS. VERY TRUE. STILL, SHE SAID, YOU KNOW THAT THEY ARE NOT CALLED POETS, BUT HAVE OTHER NAMES. ONLY THAT PORTION OF THE ART, WHICH IS SEPARATED OFF FROM THE REST, AND IS CONCERNED WITH MUSIC AND METER, IS TERMED POETRY, AND THEY WHO POSSESS POETRY IN THIS SENSE OF THE WORD ARE CALLED POETS. VERY TRUE, I SAID. AND THE SAME HOLDS FOR LOVE. "'For you may say generally that all desire of good and happiness "'is only the great and subtle power of love, "'but they who are drawn towards him by any other path, "'whether the path of money-making or gymnastics or philosophy, "'are not called lovers. "'The name of the whole is appropriated to those whose affection takes one form only. "'They alone are said to love or be lovers.' "'I dare say, I replied, that you are right.' "'Yes,' she added.' And you hear people say that lovers are seeking for their other half, but I say that they are seeking neither for the half of themselves, nor for the whole, unless the half or the whole be also a good, and they will cut off their own hands and feet and cast them away if they are evil. For they love not what is their own, unless perchance there be someone who calls what belongs to him the good, and what belongs to another the evil. For there is nothing which men love but the good. Is there anything? CERTAINLY I SHOULD SAY THAT THERE IS NOTHING. THEN, SHE SAID, THE SIMPLE TRUTH IS THAT MEN LOVE THE GOOD. YES, I SAID, TO WHICH MUST BE ADDED THAT THEY LOVE THE POSSESSION OF THE GOOD. YES, THAT MUST BE ADDED. AND NOT ONLY THE POSSESSION, BUT THE EVERLASTING POSSESSION OF THE GOOD. THAT MUST BE ADDED TOO. THEN LOVE, SHE SAID, MAY BE DESCRIBED GENERALLY AS THE LOVE OF THE EVERLASTING POSSESSION OF THE GOOD. That is most true. Then if this be the nature of love, can you tell me further, she said, what is the manner of the pursuit? What are they doing who show all this eagerness and heat which is called love? And what is the object which they have in view? Answer me. Nay, Diotima, I replied, if I had known, I should not have wondered at your wisdom. Neither should I have come to learn from you about this very matter." Well, she said, I will teach you. The object which they have in view is birth in beauty, whether of body or soul. I do not understand you, I said. The oracle requires an explanation. I will make my meaning clearer, she replied. I mean to say that all men are bringing to the birth in their bodies and in their souls. There is a certain age at which human nature is desirous of procreation, procreation which must be in beauty and not in deformity. And this procreation is the union of man and woman, and is a divine thing, for conception and generation are an immortal principle in the mortal creature, and in the inharmonious they can never be. But the deformed is always inharmonious with the divine, and the beautiful harmonious. Beauty, then, is the destiny or goddess of parturition, who presides at birth, and therefore, when approaching beauty, the conceiving power is propitious and diffuse.